your cultural competence. Listen to interesting stories. Learn about the cultural pitfalls and how to avoid them. Get the global perspective here at Culture Matters Podcast on International Business. We help you understand cultural diversity better by interviewing real people with real experiences, helping you develop your cultural competence. Hello and welcome to the Culture Matters Podcast, episode number 57. I am super excited. I'm super stoked, as they call it, because on the show today, we have no one less than Professor Aaron Meyer. Aaron Mayer is professor at INSEAD in Paris, one of the top international business schools in the world and the author of the best-selling book, The Culture Map, Breaking Through the Invisible Boundaries of Global Business. She's here to speak with us today about how national cultural differences impact day-to-day interaction. And she will give you lots and lots of real practical examples throughout the whole episode. So it's definitely worth listening throughout the whole episode all the way to the end where we'll conclude with usually the three tips on how to become more culturally competent. It's time for this week's guest at the Culture Matters podcast. Here's your host, Chris Smith. Good morning, Erin, or good morning, Miss Mayer, or good morning, Professor. What, how should I call you? Uh, just call me Erin, please. Erin, <laughs> please. All right, wonderful. Erin, tell us a little bit about yourself. Where do you come from? Where are you now? And what is your cultural frame of reference? So I was born and raised in Minnesota, in the Midwest of the U.S., and I spent my whole childhood there. Uh-huh. Although I've spent now probably over 60% of my life living outside of the U.S., living in Southeast Asia and in Southern Africa. I've lived in Paris now for over 16 years. I'm married okay. to a French person. My children actually have just been telling me over the last few days that they are French. So that's a new <laughs> piece of information for me. So, so what do you think about that? Oh, but that's very interesting, right? It's very interesting when you come to terms with the idea that your own children may be of another culture than your own. I think it's very counterintuitive as a mother. You mm-hmm. think as a mother that the, they, no matter what, will end up a little bit like you, right? Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, is, would you call your kids then third third culture kids? Um, no, I would call my children bicultural. Bicultural. My children are definitely bicultural. I mean, I think the definition of a third a third a culture kid is someone who doesn't have clear roots mm-hmm. in one specific culture or in a couple of specific cultures. And my children have very clear roots in two cultures. Which would be French and U.S. That's right. Although they were born and raised in France, so perhaps a little bit more to the French side. But they spend all summer in the U.S. They go to summer camp. They, Mandatory. They know American culture very well also. <laughs> all right. Fantastic. And um, so I just could we just blend into this whole conversation about everything in everyday life? Did you tell us what you do already? Yes. No, I didn't. So Exactly. Uh, I'm a professor at INSEAD, so I'm a professor at a business school, this international business school outside of Paris, and I'm in the organizational behavior department there, which is like the psychology department of a business school. And um, I've really spent my entire career uh, researching and teaching uh, about cultural differences, so how national cultural differences impact our globalizing world and impact what it means to be a manager in that world. Okay. And, As, yeah, sorry? And then I'm also the author of uh, this book, The Culture Map, mm-hmm. 
which came out in uh, May of 2014, which is a book that uh, provides a framework for helping managers to better decode how cultural differences are impacting their effectiveness. Okay, fantastic. Um, it's, it's, you say you're a professor at INSEAD. INSEAD is, I mean, for, I guess, world famous, certainly within France, but it's, uh, it's one of the higher international education schools, I think. Um, do you let yourself be called professor as well? Oh, well, I mean, people can call me whatever they want, but I prefer Aaron. <laughs> I mean, the, the reason I'm asking is, is that it, you being American and then living in France, having, uh, if we're talking, I'm, I, I sort of stem from the, the Hofstede uh, origin. Um, yeah. We talk about hierarchy or power distance, which is a lot higher in France. I would hope you would agree than in the United States. Yes. So, so titles, etc., and and having this hierarchical difference and this structure makes life uh, simpler in a way or more predictable. So that's the reason I'm asking you, do you let yourself be called professor? All right. But I should clarify. I mean, I totally agree with what you said, but I should clarify that INSEAD is not a French school. Uh -huh. So, I mean, we are an international business school. Only 7% of our students are French. And our, um, our, all of our faculty is called by their first names. So, so I guess I just follow, follow the cultural pattern of, uh, okay. of what we do there. Does, does it make a difference though? I mean, having a title or no title, uh, either being a doctor or being a, like a PhD, something like that, or uh, having a professor title in the work that you and I do? Well, I think, I mean, I know certainly when I teach, for example, in Brazil, that everybody calls me professor and it doesn't matter how many times I say, call me Aaron. <laughs> they, yeah. they just can't bring themselves to what feels so disrespectful to them. Yeah. So I think that's very common to what managers experience also when, for example, you might have someone from Belgium going to China and who keeps saying, you know, call me Bill. Yes. <laughs> and the best that he can possibly perhaps convince the group to do would be miss Mr. Bill. Exactly. That happened to me quite a lot as well. So it's Mr. Smith, Mr. Smith. No, call me Chris. Okay, Mr. Chris. Right. No, no, drop the Mr. But that would be that would be forcing them in a position that they don't want to be in, I think. Well, right. And they uh, they feel it's very important to show you the respect that you've deserved. And you can, you know, I actually had an interesting interview uh, with a manager about that a little while ago when uh -huh. he about being so insistent. This was an American, a young American manager. He talked about being so insistent with his Chinese team that they, you know, not only call him by his first name, but that they not defer to him in meetings, that their opinion was just as important as his opinion. And then what started to happen was something that he hadn't wished at all, uh -huh. which was that they did start doing that symbolically by, you know, calling him by his first name. And mm -hmm not deferring to his opinion, but he also found that at the same time, they stopped respecting him as a boss mm -hmm. and they started doing things that would have been inappropriate also in his American culture, like uh, disagreeing forcefully with him in front of other Chinese clients. Uh, so I do think you have to be careful about what you wish for. <laughs> so, what, what, how, how did that trigger that kind of behavior? How did he put himself out of the group like that? Well, I mean, if you if you come from a society where everybody who is above you hierarchically or everyone who has more, more who uh, is in a position of authority, you were you refer to by a term of respect and you have a certain kind of set of codes that you use towards that person. And then you insist that those individuals don't use that set of codes and they have to move you into another category. I mean, I think a clear example of that is here in France. We have the formal you, uh, the tu, the vous, the vous, yeah, and we have the informal you, the tu. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. And, you know, I remember very clearly when I first moved to France, I and mean, this actually happened with my husband. So my husband is French, but he lived in the U.S. for 17 years. Mm-hmm. And when we came back, when he came back to France, when we came to France, he uh, was quite firm with his employees that they should tutoyer him. And he, uh, he then later on felt that that was a big mistake because in France, when you move from the vous to the tu, you're not just changing the word. Mm-hmm. I mean, all sorts of feelings yeah. and um, the way that you relate to that person changes at the same time. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I think that was the same thing in China. You just have to be careful what you wish for, right? Yes, because sometimes you might even get it, exactly. <laughs> right. Yeah, absolutely. So, so Aaron, what triggered your interest in, in different cultures, in, in doing what you're currently doing? Because well, this is not natural. I mean, you grow up in the middle of the United States and, and then the world is like 25 miles a circle around yourself. And then you grow. And how did that happen? Well, you know, I had an experience early on in my career that got me really interested in studying this topic. So the experience was that in my first job, I took a trip to Japan Mm -hmm. and I was traveling with a Japanese colleague and I gave a presentation to a small group of Japanese. And at the end, I asked if there were any questions and no one raised their hand. So I went to sit down and my Japanese colleague then said to me, you know, Aaron, I think actually there were some questions Do you mind if I try? Mm -hmm. So then he stood up and he said to the group, you know, professor said, Aaron Meyer has just spoken with you. Uh, Do you have any questions? And no one raised their hand. But this time he looked very carefully at the motionless group and he seemed to study them. And as he looked at them, he then focused on one person Mm -hmm. And he said, do you have a question? And the person looked back at him and nodded his head and said, yes, thank you. I do. And then he did it again. You know, are there any questions? Mm-hmm. Oh, do you have a question? And the person said, yes, thank you. I do. So afterwards, I said to him, you know, how did you know those people had questions? Yeah. And he said, well, it had to do with how bright their eyes were. And I thought, wow, you know, for me, coming from Minnesota, as I do, that is very difficult. Yes. (laughs) But then he clarified. He said, you know, Aaron, in Japan, we don't make as much direct eye contact as you do in the West. So when you asked the group if there were any questions, most people were not looking at you directly. Mm -hmm. I noticed that when you asked if there were questions, that there were two people in the room who were really looking right at you, right in your eyes. And their eyes were bright, which symbolizes that they would be happy to have you call on them if you would like to. Mm -hmm. So the next day I gave another presentation to another small group of Japanese. Again, I asked if there were any questions. Again, no one raised their hand. But this time I thought I would just try. So I did what he suggested. I looked very carefully at the group and I saw right away, it was immediately clear that he was right, that most people were not looking right at me. And I saw as I looked at the group that there was this one woman in the third row who was looking like right in my eyes. And when I looked at her, she held my gaze. So were her eyes bright? I don't know, (laughs) but I wanted to try. So I kind of, you know, made a a short, um, I kind of moved a little bit towards her and she nodded her head and I said, oh, do you have a question? And she said, yes, thank you. And she asked a very important question. So there's this um, expression in Japanese, kuki yomanai, which means someone who's unable to read the air. Mm -hmm. 
And I think in, in this case, well, so it means someone who's unable to pick up the implicit messages in the atmosphere. And in this case, I was clearly KY. I mean, I was clearly unable to pick up these messages. But what I realized from that experience was that with a little bit of awareness mm-hmm. that we could really um, improve our ability to work across cultures. Yet this is very complicated. Mm-hmm. So that got me started on this whole path of trying to figure out if there wasn't a system that I could develop that would help managers to be more effective decoding, teasing out these cultural differences, sometimes very subtle cultural differences that were impacting their effectiveness. And that's what got me on this research project, started on this research project that I now call the culture map. That's an excellent, excellent story. Thank you for sharing that. It's that must, I, I think that's an, either a make or break moment in, in somebody's life, yours in this particular case, then that either you, you do this. And I guess you must've felt uncomfortable as well because this takes time. You finish your presentation, then you're quiet. There's silence that like you're not used to, I guess, being North American or being Western. And then you have to sort of, well, sit that out and wait and, and for, for this to happen. What Did you feel uncomfortable there? Well, I mean, I think, yes, I felt very uncomfortable. Uh-huh. I think probably all of your listeners have had that kind of experience if they've traveled in countries like Japan or Korea mm-hmm. um, or Thailand or whatever. You know, you're <laughs> exactly, teaching, yeah, yeah. Teaching a program and you expect people to jump in and everyone just looks at you. Um, but... And what's been very interesting for me about that example is that you know, now that I teach at INSEAD, I look for bright eyes all the time. And I have two things that happen. Because I have these incredibly multicultural classrooms every day at INSEAD, on the one hand, I that lesson that I learned helps me constantly in the class because Whereas I, as you know, as an American, I would just raise my hand if I have a question. I see that all sorts of nationalities signify to me that they have something to say without raising their hand. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's not quite as subtle. Like I found that if I have Chinese students that they also use bright eyes, but they'll usually use a combination of bright eyes and also kind of like a head movement. Mm-hmm. I mean, they, they have a little bit more body language, but still I have to be looking for it. And I, I now have gotten so kind of used to doing this that I, I look for bright eyes when there are none there. Like <laughs> on Friday, I was with this German company, Freudenberg. Yeah. You know, there's this German guy. Well, I think he's giving me bright eyes. <laughs> What's your question, sir? I looked at him and I said, oh, you know, Swen, do you have a question? He was like, no. <laughs> I'm sorry. Okay. And stop staring at me. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's called professional deformation. That's what my wife keeps telling me as well. I think um, it is. It, this is seems so so obvious. This this what you just painted. This picture of and and the insight. You, I think everybody gets this, even though you might not have experienced this. People understand what you just said. The story you, you told about the, 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 your experience in, in Japan. Why is it then that companies brush over culture so fast? Why does it? are hardly ever seem to be a priority, at least in my experience. Any any reason for that? Yeah, I think that there is a reason. I think that, uh, first of all, I think that most companies and individuals rely on stereotypes to understand cultural differences. Mm-hmm. And I believe that the problem with stereotypes is not that they're incorrect, mm-hmm. but that they're incomplete. 
So when we think about, you know, what is a culture like, we have a, a single narrative of what that culture is like that help that we believe helps us navigate what's going on. But the problem is that culture in reality is both contradictory and very complex. Mm-hmm. So I think that, com- and I can give you some examples of that, but I think that companies often abandon the search to understand culture too quickly because either Mm -hmm. they feel it's simpler than it is so they don't bother Mm -hmm. or they feel that they have the ticket meaning they've gotten the single narrative and um you know in truth culture is so contradictory i mean just some examples of this but for example as an american living in france i mean the french culture is much more implicit with its communication than american culture and that follows stereotypes right i mean all french people know that americans are very explicit and all americans know that the french are very sophisticated layered communicators mm-hmm. uh, but the problem is that that's only half of the story that the french culture is also more implicit with uh, with positive feedback, but more direct, much more direct with negative feedback mm-hmm. than the American culture. Mm-hmm. And in the U.S., we tend to be more, um, more, let's say, more uh, strong with positive feedback. And with negative feedback, we tend to wrap it in positives and catch people doing things right and try to do everything we can to really make that message feel palatable mm-hmm. when the person receives it. So then I often have situations where I'm working with, well, I'll give you an example. I'm working with a French manager who moves to the U.S. and she has a new American boss and the American boss gives her what he feels is really Uh, negative feedback, really feedback that she must act on. And she leaves that meeting thinking that that was the best feedback that she's ever received because she's never received so much positive feedback. So these are where managers need to be really careful. But at the same time, they often don't even recognize that culture has impacted them. So, so how, how do you convince them then? Because this is something I bump in quite often. And yes, it's important. Company says, yes, it's important. But first, we need to hire uh, new people, something like, I don't know, whatever excuse comes up, uh, which I'm not saying is not important, hiring new people or getting new equipment or, I don't know, doing a presentation technique workshop. How do you convince people that this actually, this, this matters? Culture does matter. Oh, well, I don't know about convincing people, but I do think that when you have an opportunity to have people think about this, the best thing to do is to give lots of practical examples. Mm -hmm. Because as you give examples, such as that last one, companies start to think, oh, you know, that happened to me. Or that happened to that manager who came to see me yesterday. We didn't even realize that was cultural. And it's when people start to hear that uh, things that are impacting them all, uh, impacting their organizations frequently that they didn't realize were cultural actually have a cultural element that uh, that's when they start to get interested. So I've written down a question here, which might make sense. Um, How do you convince people that cultural differences are more and go deeper than obvious the stereotypes that you just mentioned? Well, again, I, I just think the more that you can give examples of these subtle differences, the better. And the more you can give examples of how costly they are, the better. Maybe I'll uh, just give another example. <laughs> but, but for example, um, I've been working a lot with the, the Dutch company Heineken. Yeah. And early on, they didn't do much cross-cultural training. And they, you know, they bought companies all over the world. They send people, uh, hundreds, thousands of expats to many different 
different countries without really doing much preparation. Mm -hmm. But then they start falling into very costly uh, traps. And one of those, for example, is that you were talking about power distance earlier about uh, authority. Mm -hmm. And the Netherlands is a culture where people really see the teacher, the parent, the boss as an equal So in those cultures, we're taught that uh, you should challenge your authority figure, that your authority figure is just one of the guys. They purchased this big operation in Monterey, Mexico, a few years ago, and now they're managing. Now they have all of these Mexican managers who are managing Dutch people. (laughs) One of these managers said to me, you know, Aaron, managing Dutch people is absolutely incredible because they do not care at all that I'm the boss. So I go to these meetings, I'm trying to roll out my strategy and people are challenging me, they're contradicting me. You know, I don't know how to lead in this situation. Sometimes I get down on my knees and I just try to, you know, plead with them. Please don't forget that I'm the boss. You're making me blush. I'm Dutch. Don't forget that. (laughs) But I think that's a really important example for a company because companies, they, um, they invest a lot of money in leadership development. Every company knows you have to invest in your leaders. Mm-hmm. But if you're just reinforcing the same messages that people have learned in their, let's say, the home culture of the company, well, that's great as long as you stay national. Mm-hmm. But in our global world, it's not enough to know how to lead the Dutch way or the Mexican way or the Chinese way. Or so the how, do, how do you bridge this then? How do you, how do you either get the Dutch, because that's like herding cats managing Dutch, I think. It's, it's, how, how do you get the Dutch to understand that this they're challenging everything? That, that's the first thing a Dutch, a Dutch uh, worker asks his boss. If his boss asks, can you make me coffee? The first thing is why? There's always why, why challenge. So how do you, how do you sort of put the Dutch back in their place? And how do you, I'm making air quotes here, empower the Mexican manager to be able to, or to yeah to to deal with this properly that this that it actually works and it doesn't become counterproductive well i believe that uh, we have a huge a huge ability to be flexible i mean i have found that the human capacity to learn to work in different ways is very large mm-hmm. uh, and i don't i think that one of the problems is that people often think well this is my authentic way this is me so if you ask me to lead in a different way then i'm going to lose my authenticity. So what I've seen instead is that people who are the most effective leading globally have a very strong sense of what I call authentic flexibility, which means that they have a strong self Mm -hmm. that may be very closely linked to how they were raised and how they first learned to work. But with, uh, with, so let's say that's their left foot, right? Their left foot is firmly grounded in their most natural way of working. Mm -hmm. But with their right foot, they're constantly learning to adapt their style to the population that they're working with to get the results we need, they need. And that doesn't mean they always have to adapt. It just means that they have a choice. Mm -hmm that uh, one day they might decide to do it in the way that's the most natural to them and ask the other group to as to adapt to their style. Right, right. And the next day they might choose to adapt their style to the environment they're working on. But they're, but they're thinking about this. And I think that in all global companies today that are effective, they, uh, they must be working on training their leaders to know how to adapt their style in many different formats to get the results that they need. 
you know, how do you convince people? Well, <laughs> the best way, I guess, is through failure. But I don't think you have to fail first. Right. I think if you uh, just help people understand how their how their uh, behaviors are perceived, that helps a lot. Yeah, that's a good point. You, uh, the book that was published in uh, last year, no, the year before that, 2014 already, The Culture Map, um, there are quite a number of, of cultural models out there. How is yours different from, um, can I say, the Hofstadter model? Mm -hmm. So I'll say two things. I mean, first, I want to point out that uh, I have built on every on everyone else's work in my model. So I wasn't trying to do something different. I mean, my goal was not to be like, um, oh, well, I want to have my model and not their model. Exactly. Yeah. My goal was to update the research that has been done and to pull it together. Mm -hmm. So we, you know, we had Hofstede's work, we had Trompenar's work, we had Hall's work, and all of those, that information is, you know, fabulously important. But it, I believed it needed to be updated and I believed it needed to be pulled together mm -hmm. Because I have, I found that the, that information wasn't accessible enough mm -hmm. to managers, meaning it was in different places. People had to be looking for it. It wasn't like all together. Um, and I also wanted to add elements that I felt were very important to managers that had not yet been researched by those individuals. Mm -hmm. um, so, okay. So first of all, I mean, you see at a couple of my, and a few of my dimensions, you'll see they were Hofstede dimensions. I pulled from them. Uh, I have one dimension that I pulled from Trompenars. I have two that I pulled from Hall. So, uh, okay. So I was building on their research. Yep, but, makes good sense. But there is one thing, uh, one other differentiation. So uh, people always ask me, you know, okay, you had, Hall had, uh, Hofstede had power distance, and then you have this leading scale. What's the difference? And then the main difference is that Hofstede uh, looked at value systems of societies, mm -hmm. whereas I look at behaviors in business. Okay. So I was not looking at sis the, the society at large. Mm -hmm. I was looking specifically at what behaviors are considered to be effective within each country in their business environment. And then I focused a lot on, you know, okay, what are the behaviors and then what are the practical strategies for dealing with those behaviors? So some of the positions on my scales were a little bit different than Hofstede, partly because the world has been changing. Mm -hmm. And then partly, I think, because I framed my research questions a little bit differently. Okay, makes makes good sense there. To what extent, uh, if you then focus on uh, some hierarchy, that neutral word called hierarchy, to what extent does uh, an organizational culture influence the this within an organization then? Because one organization is not the same as the other organization in the same country. So there you might see fluctuations. Yeah, well, I've actually been very fascinated with that. So, for example, I've been working with the company Google a lot. And oh. <laughs> Google, I think, is a really interesting example of organizational culture because they only hire what they call Googlers, right? They only mm -hmm. hire people who have a very specific type of personality, And we could say that that personality is basically like being a Californian. Right? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> and um, that um, that homogeneity in their organization has led to some very strong benefits and also some very and also some strong difficulties. So the benefit is, of course, that it's much easier to work in Google uh, than it is in a culture and a company who doesn't have that level of sameness. Uh, they don't have so many misunderstandings because they have similar personalities. On the other hand, one of the challenges that arises is that it's difficult 
in many countries for Google to find employees that fit their, their company persona. So, for example, I worked with a human resource director in Russia for Google, and she said, you know, we sometimes have a position that's open for a couple of years because I can't find a Russian person that has this Google or this mm. California personality that I'm looking for. And I think with other companies that if you have very strong corporate cultures, it may also mean that you are less close to your clients. Uh, so I've worked, for example, with a big American company, really task oriented company, and they hired people, you know, in the Middle East who were the most task oriented people they could find. And that's great inside their company because it makes things easier. But when you send those really task oriented people in Saudi Arabia out to negotiate with their clients, they don't do so well. Yep. Um, so I think that company culture can have lots of benefits. Having a strong homogeneity can have lots of benefits, but we also have to think carefully about what we're giving up when we chose, choose that homogeneity. And I'd also like to say, I mean, I've been looking lately a lot at the, the benefits of diversity. Mm -hmm. And of course, if you choose homogeneity, you may lose out on having people who think in entirely different ways working in your organization. Yeah, all that's, that's fair. Advantages and benefits, I guess. I'm, uh, I'm very conscious of the time. I have three short questions to round it up. Is that okay? Yeah. Okay. You've written this book, 2014. Um, what's next for you in the future? Oh, well, I will not be writing another book in the next year. <laughs> if I was asking me that. Um, I'm currently doing, I'm currently working on two things. Both I'm working on putting together several software tools that will help people do the type of culture mapping that we talk about in the book in, in their own organizations. And I'm also working currently on doing some new research. I'm researching right now. Uh, I'm looking at things like, how um, how num numerical data is perceived differently in different parts of the world mm -hmm. so that if you do, for example, an employee satisfaction survey, mm -hmm. how people in Russia may use numbers differently than uh, people in Brazil and how to better uh, better decode those differences. That's interesting. That's interesting. Can't wait for that to, uh, to be published. Um, the, probably the most difficult question, and I ask this every guest uh, as well, can you give us three tips to become more culturally competent from your experience? Yeah, well, I think that uh, beyond doing what I feel is the, the obvious, which is learning as much as you can. <laughs> okay, so first of all, I, I believe the most important thing is that you learn everything you can about the culture that you're working with. And if you're leading a multicultural team, I believe that, that you need to not just learn about what that culture is like, but that you need to learn about how different cultures perceive one another. So, okay, this will be my first point. My first recommendation mm -hmm. is that you understand the cultural relativity of the cultures that you're working with. So to give you an example of this, I had a global team I was working with where I had British people mm -hmm. and French people who were working together on the same team. I asked the British, what's it like to work with the French? And they said, well, Aaron, you know the French. They're very disorganized. They're very chaotic. They're always late. They're always changing the topic in the middle of a meeting, so it's difficult to follow them. Later on, I had a group from India who joined the same team, and I asked the Indians, what's it like to work with the French? And the Indians said, well, Aaron, you know the French. They are very rigid. 
They're very inadaptable. They're so focused on the structure and punctuality of things Uh that they're not able to adapt as things change around them. So what you can see there is two different cultures having entirely opposite perceptions of the French culture. And this is what we have in our global world. And you can see this on my frame on my culture map framework that on one of the scales, the scheduling scale Mm -hmm. that France falls between the UK and India, which then leads to these opposite perceptions. So my first point is that you need to learn not what is that culture like, but how do different cultures perceive one another so that you can better decode this type of multicultural interaction. That's number one. Okay. Okay. Beyond that, after you've learned everything that you can, you need to be humble. (laughs) Humility is everything. Uh, Of course, we all have a tendency to believe that our own culture is somehow the best way or the right way. Uh, But what I've seen internationally is that every culture has a a benefit. And if we learn to recognize that, uh, that if we can put ourselves in others' shoes and try to see it from the other perspective, then we can't help but become more and more effective working in this uh, very complex cross-cultural world that we are working in. And then the third point is that we need to be curious. And I think... I often have people say to me in my pre-programmed questionnaires, oh, you know, I've already lived for many years in another country. I think I've got this. Mm-hmm. But anyone who really understands cross-cultural uh, learning knows that you never really get it. There's always more to learn because the world is just so fascinating and so complex. And we need to be continually asking questions so that we can improve our ability to work effectively across this world. It's a bit of an uh, of the sales acronym ABC, always be closing, but rather than uh, always be curious. That's right. Exactly. We'll take ABC. <laughs> Wonderful. Thanks very much. How can people get in touch with you, Erin, should they want to? I have a website, erinmeyer.com. Uh, I post blogs out there frequently, and you can also always send me an email message from that website. It goes directly into my, web, into my email account. Okay. Wonderful. Thank you so much for taking the time out of your very busy, busy schedule to uh, chat with this with us on the, uh, or with me rather, on the Culture Matters podcast. And I'm pretty sure we'll be in touch in the future. It was wonderful. Thank you, Chris. Thanks. Bye-bye. Thank you, Aaron, for taking the time out of your schedule, like I said before, to talk to us about how you've experienced cultural differences. And thank you also for sharing the uh, the examples, and also the personal examples about the cultural difference that you've experienced and how to better become more culturally competent in the three tips that you shared in the end. That's it for the Culture Matters podcast. If you like what I do with this podcast, I'd really appreciate if you would um, sort of wave at me. You can do that several ways. You can go to the website and you could, of course, leave a comment at this uh, particular episode. What you could also do if you think culture matters in your business, in your field as well. Throughout the year, um, I've planned a number of webinars and you can enroll for the webinars as well. Just go to culturematters.com and click on the events tab and you'll see the whole overview. Uh, on the different topics that I'll cover in each webinar. There's one every other month, so there's plenty to choose from as well there. Thanks again. That's it. I'll be back in two weeks' time with yet another interview, of course. Take care. Talk to you then. Bye-bye. That's it for this episode. The Culture Matters Podcast, helping you understand cultural diversity better by interviewing real people with real experiences.